Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Live Label Free podcast. Today I am joined by Quinn Hazley. They, she is a non-binary, queer, and neurodivergent eating disorder dietitian. Quinn started working in the eating disorder field three years ago as a registered dietitian in Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center, where she has worked at the PHP, IOP, and outpatient levels. They started their own practice, Practice Eros Nutrition, in April of 2022 to primarily focus on working with LGBTQ plus and neurodivergent folks after seeing a need for more affirming treatment spaces run by clinicians with lived experience. Quinn is passionate about breaking out of the cookie-cutter eating disorder treatment model and bringing social justice into eating disorder recovery. In today's episode, Quinn and I discuss the overlap between neurodiversity, eating disorders, and the LGBTQ plus community. I learned so much from this conversation, so I have no doubt you will too. Welcome to Live Label Free, the podcast, where you'll learn to let go of limiting labels and embrace your unique brain. As my mom says so beautifully in her song, which is why on this podcast, you'll learn the scientific links between neurodiversity and eating disorders, giving you a deeper understanding of how you can face your fears and become truly free. Together, you and me, we will keep putting one foot in front of the other. Hi, Quinn. Thank you Hi. so much for coming on to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I am good. We were just both talking about before we started recording that it's Friday, TGIF. Um, Seriously. I'm so, so, so realizing I'm already getting so much energy from talking to you because I think this is such an important topic we're going to dive into today. Um, yeah. But let's just start with you and your brand. And what is Practice Eros? I hope I said that right. What is Practice Eros Nutrition and what inspired you to do the work you do today? Yeah, so Practice Eros Nutrition is the private practice that I started. It's been almost a year ago now, exactly, which is exciting. Thank you. Um, I started my private practice, which focuses primarily on working with LGBTQ identified and neurodivergent clients, um, because I am LGBTQ identified and neurodivergent. And I really just saw a need for more kind of affirming tailored treatment for people in those communities within the eating disorder treatment space. Um, There's definitely some of it out there, but there's a shocking lack of it considering how many people who are queer or neurodivergent have an eating disorder and are in recovery. So I wanted to be able to give more to those communities and create a safe space for them. That is so beautiful. And I love that you kind of created this from your own lived experience because I believe that lived experience is like the best qualification that exists when it comes to helping people. Um, Because how can you ever understand someone dealing with these issues? I I don't even want to say issues, um, but like dealing with these parts of their life, if 
you don't have that lived experience, right? And for yeah. me, it's really similar in that I have really started focusing on bridging that gap between eating disorders and neurodiversity specifically. Of course, mm-hmm. I don't have that lived experience with um with queer identity or being part of the LGBTQ community, but I've just found in my lived experience with basically having an eating disorder for 10 years and not knowing that there was any type of underlying neurodiversity for me, yeah. discovering like how my approach to not only recovery, but life is so, so different and having this unique lens to look through and ha- having a community of people that that understand that and now being able to spread that message to other people, I think it's so, so empowering. Um, yeah. And it makes you, I guess, grateful for being so unique and being so different. Um, whereas for me in the past, I always wanted to fit in and be like everyone else. But now I'm sure. like, hell no. Like, I just want to be me. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's great to see, I think, so many community spaces where we have more people with lived experience doing this kind of work. I feel like in the past few years, I've seen a lot more of that. And it's so helpful in these spaces. Right, right. Because these spaces allow, I think... It's kind of with the whole idea of um, the autism, I guess. We, we hear a lot like autism has become more prevalent <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not that it's become more prevalent. It's just that people recognize it and are more aware of it. And I feel yeah. like it's the same with like being LGBTQ or, or any type of eating disorder. Um, like it's not that there are more people suddenly LGBTQ now. It's just that there's more acceptance around it. Although we were just talking about there's a lot of non-acceptance around it. Yes. Well, unfortunately. Um, But let's focus on the positive, right? Um, Because one of my favorite quotes by Martin Luther King is hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And I I apply that everywhere because I'm like, if we're going to focus our our energy on the horrible people that are saying it's all fake news, (laughs) we're not going to get anywhere. Um, Exactly. to to empower the people that are advocating for inclusivity and love um, and acceptance. Um, So yeah, with all that said, um, how can being queer and neurodivergent interplay during an eating disorder? Yeah, those are excellent questions. I think one thing that I have found to be really interesting, and I know we've like briefly talked about this together, but there is a ton of intersection from what I have seen between being queer and being neurodivergent. And there's definitely been some interesting, I feel like this is probably something we're going to get more research on in the next few years, but a lot of interesting research around how being neurodivergent honestly makes people like think kind of outside of the box and think outside of social norms, which makes people feel more comfortable with exploring things like queer identities. So you see a lot of overlap between being neurodivergent and being queer. Mm -hmm. Um, So many of my clients who come to see me are both queer and neurodivergent. And it's very interesting to explore with them how both of those things are impacting their eating disorder, are impacting recovery. Um, I think one thing that you've already brought up that is really important is like a lot of people in recovery feel like there's a lack of uh, spaces where they feel like they have people who they can identify with. Um, This is, I think, especially a thing that I see with people who've gone to higher levels of care or done different treatment programs. And uh, while those can be like extremely helpful and extremely supportive for people, they're not usually like tailored for neurodivergent or queer people (laughs) so there can be like a lot of gaps in care that happen there or there's just 
a lack of understanding on clinicians' parts where they don't understand how being queer or neurodivergent is impacting somebody's eating disorder. So that's why I think it's really helpful when people are in recovery to try to find either clinicians who have lived experience or find support groups, peer support groups, like finding those things that are going to make them realize that they're like not alone in the experiences that they're having and that a lot of other people can identify with those experiences too. Yeah, I mean, I think you just brought up a really, really good point about higher levels of care and treatment centers just not being tailored. And like, e- even though I don't have, um, of course, lived experience with with the queer um, LGBTQ community or identity, I do have experience with that um, neurodiversity, which going having been <laughs> forced in and out of treatment for almost a decade, like, I really learned to mask my I guess, no diversity um, yeah. and, and kind of became conditioned to tell the therapist, to tell the treatment providers what I knew they wanted me to hear. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of what I said, a lot of my truth was invalidated. Like, oh, that's just your eating disorder. Oh, that's yeah. this. Whereas I think, especially because I now have a client that struggles with body dysmorphia and they said that a lot of it was actually caused by feeling like they were in the wrong body um and I think even that like I can even imagine if this person was saying I struggle with the body dysmorphia like I feel like I'm in the wrong body it would immediately be oh well that's your eating disorder yeah and and of course I'm imagining how that can contribute to disordered eating because you want to change your body and you can do that I guess through eating and food and exercise right but but that's just one of those ways in which I'm like that invalidation is much more likely to occur when you're working with someone who has no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And I've definitely seen that with a number of my clients. I've seen that in eating disorder treatment spaces where like you're talking about being neurodivergent and somebody being like, oh, that's just the eating disorder where there's definitely certain eating behaviors that are tied to somebody being neurodivergent. that are not tied to the eating disorder like those are two separate things so a lot of the work that I do with my clients is kind of piecing out like what might be related to the eating disorder what feels like a disordered behavior versus what's just tied to being neurodivergent and I think giving themselves permission to use like reasonable accommodations for themselves that makes sense to use because they're neurodivergent and like you're saying with queer clients especially like gender non-conforming and trans clients, there can definitely be that sort of, oh, it is just the eating disorder. That's just the body dysmorphia that'll go away once you're in recovery versus if they're like really experiencing strong gender dysphoria, things like gender affirming surgery or HRT, like that kind of treatment care can be super helpful for them. But if that's not being recognized by their treatment team or by a higher level of care, then they can get really stuck in recovery because nobody's recognizing that that's what's happening. Exactly. I mean, so much of what you just said, I'm just like, yes, this. Um, And you just named the term um, gender dysphoria. I have to be really honest that I, this is still a really new term to me. So I'm super curious. um, How can gender dysphoria impact the development of disordered eating or an eating disorder? Yeah. And this is definitely something, again, I see a lot with my trans and gender non-conforming clients who are coming to me. So I think it's really important to have sort of the difference recognized between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria. Cause while there can definitely be like a lot of overlap between the two, it's, you know, feeling a severe amount of distress being in your body. Like all of that can be very similar, but with 
body dysmorphia, usually we're thinking in ED recovery that the process of like renourishing ourselves, doing body image work, all of that can make significant impact on improving body dysmorphia versus mm -hmm. gender dysphoria is going to be like solely related to feeling like the body you are in does not align with your gender identity. And you can do, you know, all of the body image work that you want to and re-nourish yourself as much as you want to. And that won't necessarily get rid of gender dysphoria. So right. I think that that's like the big distinction to make is that they're not going to be treated the same way exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like you really brought up a good point there. And that's kind of bringing me back to what you said before about like distinguishing the neurodivergent traits from the eating disorder traits. I think- yeah. This is kind of a lot of what I talk about in not only with my clients, but also in my upcoming book is this idea of how for years, like treatment providers try to um, treat my eating disorder, cure me from my eating disorder by trying to get rid of my autistic traits. <laughs> and, and that's just like really reminding me of what you're saying here about like they're trying to cure the, the body dysmorphia by trying to get rid of the gender dysphoria but yeah. what that ultimately creates is more invalidation more insecurity more anxiety more distrust and I'm like these are all the factors that led to the eating disorder in the first place yeah. um so that's why I think the work you're doing is so so important and again with that lived experience like being able to see like or explore with your clients, like what's coming from where, so that we know what do we maybe want to work on, but what do we also want to embrace, right? Because yeah. for me, um, I think I stayed stuck in my eating disorder for much longer because it was like, you have to get rid of your sensory food preferences. You have to get rid of your need for routine around food. But the more you try and attack something that's intrinsically part of you, mm -hmm. the, the more yeah, like I said, invalidation and distrust. And when you don't have trust in your body and treatment providers in life, like, of course, you're, you're going to cling to something that gives you that false sense of control, right? That which is the eating disorder. Um, yeah. So so yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, it, it, I think it leads really well onto the next question, which um, is, what are some incorrect assumptions that are often made about queer people with eating disorders? Oh my gosh, wow, that's such a good question. Um, I think honestly, one of the misconceptions is that, especially with gender, that like anybody who has developed an eating disorder who is trans or non-binary, gender non-conforming has gender dysphoria, because that's not always necessarily true. And things like gender affirming surgery or hormone therapy are not something that like every single person will actively seek out or want to have. So I think that that's definitely a big one is like kind of the assumption that everybody's experience with an eating disorder is going to be the same if they're in the LGBTQ community, when it's yeah. going to be like very individualized and very different. And there can be a lot of overlap for people. But I think that that is like, let's not just stick people into the box of like, everybody's experience is going to look the same if they're a part of this community that we all have different like lived experience with with that yeah so I definitely think that that's like one of the the major things hey you have you already grabbed a copy of my brand new cookbook nourishing neurodiversity 
As a neurodivergent individual who has fully recovered from an eating disorder, I know firsthand what it feels like to struggle with reliable hunger cues, experience digestive issues, and honestly, I still don't want to deal with the anxiety and overwhelm that comes with elaborate cooking. And that is exactly why I created Nourishing Neurodiversity, to literally help you nourish your neurodiversity. The book is filled with over 50 easy recipes, and although I personally do not follow a specific lifestyle or diet because I'm all about living label-free, I ensured that all the recipes in the book are vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, and nut-free because I know that a majority of the neurodivergent population does have allergies, intolerances, or very strong preferences. And speaking of preferences, I also designed each recipe to be customizable to your unique needs because everyone is different and not everyone likes the same ingredients. Lastly, Nourishing Neurodiversity offers endless tips on how to improve executive functioning, heal digestive issues, optimize gut health, and support mental health. To grab your very own copy of Nourishing Neurodiversity, or perhaps to give it as a gift to a neurodivergent friend or family member, simply visit the link livelabelfree.com forward slash nourishing dash neurodiversity, or just click the link in the show notes. Be sure to let me know what you think, and I absolutely cannot wait for you to try out the recipes. Now, let's get back to today's episode. I think another common misconception is uh, thinking that like sexual orientation doesn't have as much of an impact on eating disorders as gender identity, because I see a lot of information and a lot of stuff in research and everything that looks a lot into how gender identity and transness can impact the development of an eating disorder or how an eating disorder is perpetuated. But I see a lot less on how sexual orientation can impact somebody's eating disorder or the development of an eating disorder. So I think a lot of my clients who are cis, mm-hmm. but might be queer, gay, bisexual, like whatever they identify as, that that is not always brought up or recognized in their treatment because the provider is like, whatever, you're cis, like you obviously feel comfortable in your butt, like you're fine. <laughs> and so they don't think about how like their sexual identity might actually also be impacting their eating disorder or their development of their eating disorder. And so that kind of gets like shoved to the side a little bit. Of course. And again, I, I th- you, you brought up something really important and, and kind of the whole philosophy behind living label free as you said that's kind of the problem is that people place people in boxes like it's we push it to the side you're this so you can't be this um but I think I believe any kind of restriction and invalidation is rooted in labels like whether we're labeling food as good or bad but also whether we're labeling a person and their traits as this is significant or this is important and this isn't um yeah it's and again that's like I feel the problem with like traditional treatment and just people who I guess try and help eating disorders that have no lived experience and are just basically trying to copy paste their textbook <laughs> onto a person exactly and then when that doesn't work they're like uh you're too complex you're just gonna have to stand forever <laughs> because we don't find you in the textbook I'm like have you ever exactly <laughs> like that and again like that comes all back to everyone is different like everyone like I don't even think anyone matches the textbook definition of an eating disorder. no 
No, I mean, it's one of my major complaints always with the DSM is like, it's such a strict thing to keep everybody to, to like qualify for an eating disorder. And then I think it negates people's experiences if they're like, oh, I don't fit into this little box that is what an eating disorder is supposed to be. And then they feel like, oh, like, should I not get support then? Like, do I not deserve recovery? Because I don't fit into this classic view of what an eating disorder looks like. And it like just perpetuates that like already existing belief of I'm not sick enough. Yeah, <laughs> Which totally. Is, yeah, and and I think also with kind of going back to what we said about the DSM and these textbooks, I like asked one of my clients once who was like, yeah, but but this isn't right. Like I don't match this, and I'm like, who do you think wrote this textbook? Like, not <laughs> someone with lived experience. Nope. <laughs> so I'm like, the problem is already in like the origins of this diagnosis, and kind of when I realized that. Like, I mean, I was having an interview last week also with um, ARFID dietitian, um, with Lauren Sharifi. Um, yeah. And she was even saying how, like, ARFID, that diagnosis is, like, even only 10 years old. And then I'm yeah. like, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't around before, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But I think oh, you just yes. super, <laughs> I just think it's so, so important that you said, like, how... Um, labels and and placing people in boxes like that can be so invalidating and so harmful and you you also brought up how um there's this misconception that sexual orientation doesn't have as much as an impact on eating disorders could you elaborate a bit on like maybe give an example of how um kind of invalidated sexual orient like uh how do i how can i best phrase this like how if someone's um kind of if they do i identify as non um non non straight i guess <laughs> that's the best way to say it like if that's being pushed to the side like how can this negatively impact their um experience in recovery or, or recovering from their eating disorder yeah that's a great question and i have a few examples that are kind of popping up in my head of conversations that i've had with clients about this um i've definitely had a few clients where when we're talking about sort of the origins of their eating disorder and when in their life they remember eating disorder behaviors popping up that some of it happened when they first recognized that they weren't straight and they're like oh no okay like i'm finally recognizing that something might be going on with my sexual orientation and that can freak you out. That can feel really scary. And they also might not exist in environments where that feels really safe to come out. And so a protective mechanism that can come up for that is the eating disorder. And so that's definitely something that has has popped up for some of my clients of like the eating disorder developed because they didn't feel safe in their own identity or being open about their own identity. And so that was like their protective mechanism that they made for themselves. Um, the other thing too, that I feel like comes up for a lot of my clients, if they're cis, but they're gay or bisexual or lesbian, that they go to healthcare providers and a lot of healthcare providers assume straightness for a lot of these clients. And so if they come in and they're cis, but the doctor's like assuming that they're straight as well, then they can ask questions. Like I've had clients where they're like, oh, like, tell me about your husband. And the person's like, hey, I'm a lesbian. Like I have a wife. Thank you. And And the doctor's like, like, oh, okay. So I think it's that. It's like this, this kind of assumption that a lot of providers have of like, we're going to just assume everybody is cis and straight until you have told me otherwise versus kind of going into it being like, 
I don't know about your identity. And so I'm going to use either, you know, very non-gendered language around things, or I'm going to ask you questions about it to discover like what your identities are. So I think that 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 is definitely something a lot of my clients encounter for sure. I love that you um, use the word assume because it just um, immediately making me think of something my mom always says whenever I would get mad at her because she would assume something about me I'd be like you always assume things and then she'd be like yeah well you know what assume stands for it makes an ass out of you and me exactly that's why we shouldn't assume things right, and that's just like I don't I don't even know why I had to say that but just like I'm like giggling in my head <laughs> but anyways um yeah I think that's so interesting that you brought that up and like obviously for me not being I guess in a white body that's straight and cis and fitting that stereotype of an eating disorder when I was sick like I I it really opened my up opened up my eyes to hear this from you and also to hear like experiences from my clients that don't have I guess that don't I guess fit society's mold of this is what an eating disorder looks like because I'm just like realizing more and more how what a privilege I had and and that just it's become so clear to me that the world is so unfair, like with this language and like going to the doctor and having these assumptions made about you, even though you totally don't identify with that, like how invalidating that feels and, and indeed how unsafe that feels. And, and when it does come to like, say you are um, discovering you are lesbian or gay or queer, or, or you are exploring your identity and feeling like this is not the body I am supposed to be in, but it feels too unsafe to, to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, like, of course, you're going to develop an eating disorder is like what I'm thinking, because I'm like, you know, or you feel like the world is not going to accept you for who you are. And that feels like everything is out of my control, because basically it is. And I would say like, the only the only thing that basically every is in every single person's control is like what they eat and how they move. Yeah. And that's why I just don't think it's that strange that people are like, why do so many people develop eating disorders? I'm like, well, it's actually not weird at all. (laughs) If you think about the fat phobic and stigmatizing society we live in, that's like getting worse by the day. I'm like, of course, the prevalence of eating disorders is going up. I know. Um, Yeah. So kind of, again, I always come back to, I think it's so, so important, the work you're doing, the work I'm doing, the work so many people are doing. Um, are there any other misconceptions you wanted to share with our audience um, that are often made about um, queer people with eating disorders? I to think if there's any other ones that like typically come up for my clients. Um, it's really like nothing glaring that's sticking out to that's me, okay. but if I think of something, I'll come back that's to you okay. with that. Yeah, well, that's okay. Well, if anyone is listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, you totally didn't name this misconception, please either reach out to me or Quinn on Instagram. So I'm at Live Label Free and you are? I am at Practice Eros Nutrition and it's underscore between practice and Eros and Eros and nutrition. So practice underscore Eros underscore nutrition. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll also link that in the show notes below as well. So if anyone um, listening to this really wants to share their their glaring assumption or misconception i am sure there's so many that people have encountered well i i mean i'd love to hear that because i always say like my clients or like the people that have lived experience or are i guess my audience like i learn the most from them (laughs) i feel like i'm sure it's the same for you 
Um, even in like, in like working with people, when I am trying to explain something or, um, bring something into words, like something that's probably been at the back of my mind for a super long time, but like through talking with them or through working with them, I'm like, wow, this is like the first time I've been able to vocalize this. And then I'll make it into a piece of content or put it somewhere else. And I'm like, thank you client. (laughs) Um, And they're like, I didn't do anything. And I'm like, you're like, no, you did. You existed. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think we just, you touched on so, so many important topics. And I think it just, the misconceptions go to show how much work needs to be done in the world and the awareness that is necessary. Um, But I think bit by bit, even though we've, we've seen a lot of negativity around this, I think focusing on the positive, you know, um bringing amplifying the voices of people with lived experience is the best most important thing we can do um Mm -hmm. and and with that said like talking about treatment and everything how can eating disorder treatment be tailored and be more validating for queer individuals yeah i think one of the main things is making sure that all of the staff is trained in how to work with queer individuals that is kind of like to me very basic level of what treatment centers can do um and there's amazing people and organizations out there who do trainings um I ended up just like top of my head, Fed Up Collective is one of my favorite and they work primarily with trans and intersex clients to get them treatment, to get them care. And they do trainings with facilities and they're amazing. It goes over like terminology that different clinicians should know. It goes over the difference between body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria. That's a big one. I think that the main things that come up for me with creating like safe spaces for people in treatment centers, again, is just that kind of like basic education that clinicians can do around the topic, again, so that it doesn't feel like the patients or the clients that they're working with have to put in a ton of labor to educate their treatment team, because that's a lot of like emotional and mental labor that the person is doing then to try to educate their treatment team about what their experience is feeling like. And I think that there's a difference between being a clinician and being curious about somebody's experience and wanting to get some more details from them versus having like zero understanding of the words that they're using or the experience that they've had. And so then you're spending a ton of time educating your treatment team versus actually getting support from them. So that to me is really the big thing is like just at minimum, making sure all of the staff actually have received formal training in how to work with queer individuals. Yeah, I, th- I think that's so important. You just brought that up and like not having the, the patient or client themselves have to put all this work in educating because yeah. for me personally, like now, like I remember going to the doctor just like last year and they were talking about BMI and I'm like, do you not understand that BMI is like the bullshittiest thing ever? And they yeah. were like, no, but this is the system we use. And I was like rattling off a whole story about how BMI was invented. And they were just like blankly staring at me. And they ended with like, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> like, you should, you're a medical provider. <laughs> right. And I'm just like thinking like, I'm sitting here, I'm paying you and my insurance is paying you to basically not know anything. I'm like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Like flipped worlds here. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, and also Fed Up Collective, I'm actually going to put their link in the description below because yeah. I had a quick 
quick Google search of them. Um, yeah, and it looks like they're doing great work, like you yeah, said. Yeah, they do really amazing work. They also have a dietitian match program that I'm a part of where they can help match dietitians with people who are going through fed up to get treatment or to get extra care. Um, and they provide like very low cost services for those people, which is amazing to have, you know, obviously affordable treatment, which we know can also be an issue treatment not being affordable or accessible for people. It, I, it, yeah, and I mean, I can't even imagine like how that might even be harder for people, like even for like trans, like surgeries, right? Like gender, yeah. like a lot of the time that's not covered because they're like, oh, that's your problem. Like, and I'm like, what the actual frick? Like, yeah, just, definitely uh, getting coverage. Another huge issue that we have found with some of our trans individuals who are trying to get surgeries done is. BMI cutoffs, where providers will not give them things like top surgery because their BMI is too high. And so then they're getting denied like what I consider to be life-saving treatment because of their BMI. So huge issues, I think, still that we're working through for that. Yeah. And again, that's just one of those illustrations of how messed up the healthcare system is. Because like I um I read this quote somewhere else that I was like, oh wow, that's like a great way to um to metaphorically represent BMI and it was like if a neurosurgeon is performing 200 year old techniques he would be immediately banned and I'm like well BMI is over 200 years old too so why is literally every healthcare professional still using that in in a world where like the technology has never been as advanced as it has ever been and then of course also just acknowledging that some people naturally need to be in a larger body to function at their best I'm like why can people just not accept that? <laughs> I know, I know. It's so frustrating. <laughs> so frustrating. But but again, it always brings me back to Quinn, you are doing amazing work and I'm so thankful for you and everyone else listening to this who wants to become more aware and who wants to better themselves because I think there is no shame in lack of knowledge. I think as long as you are open and to learning and listening and, and at least trying to understand other perspectives, I think- if everyone was that way, like we would have no wars in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's that closed mindset of this is how we do it. This is the only way. This is my belief. Everyone else is fake news. Like it's yeah. that mindset that creates awfulness in the world. So thank you, Quinn, so much for being here today. Yeah. Um, anything else you wanted to add or share with our audience? Any words of wisdom? <laughs> I mean, I think my main words of wisdom is if you are queer or you're a neurodivergent and you are in recovery from an eating disorder, knowing that definitely you're not alone in this, that there are so many people who have similar lived experiences. And I think just kind of reinforcing finding those safe spaces where you can find other people who can validate your experiences, who can identify with your experiences. There's some amazing like free resources out there for people, but I, it just, I've seen the amazing impact that finding community can have for people. So, I mean, like this, like this podcast, having something like this that people can turn to as an amazing resource. I think the more that we have things like that, the better off people will be. Yes, I, I love that. Yeah, because that's like that's the whole reason why I have this podcast. Like jumping off of what I just said is like to create that openness and that awareness and just spread the message and amplify voices of people with lived experience. Um, because it's it's so 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 important. And I could add a thousand more shows to that. Um, well, Quinn, thank you so much again for sharing everything you shared today. I mean. Yeah. I learned so much, which I have no doubt my audience will learn so much. Um, and yeah, 
if you, my listeners or if our listeners want to learn more about you or get in touch or be be part of your amazing community, what would be the best way to do so? Best thing, you can go to either my Instagram, which I already shared the handle, or you can go to my website, which is www.practicearosnutrition.com. You can learn a little bit more about me, about the work that I do. I also have a couple of groups. I have an LGBTQ eating disorder support group and a neurodivergency and eating support group. So if anybody's interested in either of those, you can check that out as well on my website. Amazing. Well, because we just talked about the power of community, I'm like... I want to just be running over there <laughs> or walking, right? Whatever, whatever works for you, whatever movement you prefer in life. Um, again, thank you so much, Quinn, for coming on the podcast. It's been thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh yeah, and I'll leave all your links to all your handles and everything in the show notes below. Um, I'll leave the link to the Fed Up Collective in the show notes below. So anyone who can't, um, who's not an auditory link listener um you can just click the link in the show notes and with all that said thank you again quinn thank you listeners for listening and i'll chat with you guys in the next episode bye-bye for now just one foot in front of the other and you'll see around the corner this podcast has been recorded by your host live This podcast has been edited by my wonderful friend, Dharma, and the beautiful song, One Foot in Front of the Other, that you were now listening to was written and recorded by my beautiful mom, Louise Alexandra. I am so grateful for my team and everyone who supports Live Label Free. Together, we are always stronger.